Um, when I was first ordained, I served under a very wise bishop who once made this observation, that when people stop believing uh, in Jesus Christ, the problem is not that they, stop, that they start believing in nothing. Uh, on the contrary, the problem is that they start believing in anything. And all kinds of people who think they are not Christian believers have a very strong belief system that would be quite vulnerable, probably, if you said to them, well, you tell me why you believe that. It's not surprising that we believe strongly in different things. If St. Augustine was right when he said, uh, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you, well, it may tell us that there is a point you get to where you've found Jesus Christ and you come to rest, but the implication is that you're going to be looking around for all other kinds of things to believe in until that moment comes. And human history would seem to suggest that we tend to believe pretty much anything that offers to us what we know we need. We know our need, we assume. And so perhaps if we kind of drift our way into uh, Christian things, we may find ourselves saying, well, uh, we know our need, and Jesus, it would appear, uh, will answer it. And then there's a bit of a crash when we find that no, he doesn't. Jesus doesn't just accept from us our analysis of what our need is and go on to answer it. He tends to have a rather different agenda. And in the story that we've got in front of us today, it would have been very easy to see that story simply as, as the apostles did. Well, these people are hungry. Send them away. Let them go and find food. And Jesus says, well, no, uh, you feed them. So we can't feed them. Don't be stupid. You know their need. Just send them away and get, let them get food. Do please turn to it, to Luke chapter 9, page 1039. It would have been easy uh, to think of this story as, here's the people, uh, they're, they're hungry and thirsty after um, listening to Jesus, um, after following him and, and watching healings. So, uh, isn't it nice? Isn't Jesus kind and generous and compassionate? And he feeds them. Ah, nice, nice story. And so it's very important that we look at what's going on around this story, how Luke sets it, if we're going to grasp the di very different agenda from that that Jesus has, in fact. Verse 7. Herod, the Tetrarch, the ruler, that is, of the territory, heard about everything that was going on. And some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. But Herod said in verse 9, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? Uh, but then go on to the other end, the, the kind of the bookend for our story. Uh, verse uh, 18. And this is, all remember how Luke sets this out, even though this, the, this verse now is, is well moved on from the one before it. Once when Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? 
They give different answers in verse 20. What about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? So Herod is saying, who then is this? And Jesus is putting the question to the crowds and to his disciples, who do you say I am? Who is this man then? Is the question that's the bookends around this story. Who is this? And the story is there to give Luke's answer. He sets it here very carefully between these two who questions to give the answer to this is who it is. And for a moment, we have to go back to the Old Testament and to a story that you probably have heard, you may even know quite well. It's the story of the people wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And in that time, God feeds them. He provides manna for them, provides meat for them in the form of quails, provides water for them from the rocks. God makes this provision for his people as they're wandering through the desert. But we hear, and actually if you've got children in the 11s to 14s group, they will have heard today about the rebellions that go on in the desert. Even though God was generous and provided for his people, the people were rebellious. And again and again, actually, partly in the story itself, you read of those rebellions, but you know how important it is when you come to the Psalms. Uh, Or or, uh, if you've been in the evening, uh, in Nehemiah, when there are these great big looks back over history, the story they tell is always the same. Psalms, Nehemiah, and others of those books. And it runs like this. You did this for us. We cried out to you. You did this for us. Wasn't that fantastic of you? Weren't you great and kind and good and generous? But we rebelled. And then out of our rebellion there came hardship, and we cried out to you again. And you were good and generous and kind, but we rebelled. And the story, the kind of the common narrative that they all had about the uh, period in the wilderness was one in which God was kind and generous, but the people rebelled. The story that they all had in their heads as a kind of basic story to life was that God had fed them, but they had been rebellious. And uh, nothing really had changed. They told that story, they kept telling a version of that story all the ways, all the days through to um, you were kind and generous but we rebelled, then you sent us into exile in order to humble us. Now we've come back from exile and by the time of Jesus they know they're back from exile but it doesn't feel like it. They've still got oppressors around and they feel they are still under hardship. They know that they are rebellious but it's quite interesting to see what they do about it. Because they have two kinds of ways of dealing with their own sense of unease, dis-ease, in the story that that they're living out. One is the terrorist model, in which there are those who want to rise up against the Romans and take back control of the people, so that the people will be again uh, able to worship God. They want to throw off the Roman yoke. But of course, actually, that's still just rebellion in a different way because they're not trusting God to sort them out. 
the other way, the, the other really important way that, uh, of, of sorting things out is not terrorism, but what you might call rigorism. It's the Pharisees and their approach that runs, if we only just kind of do this, follow the law this precisely, just can, we're going to make it even a bit wider just so to kind of give ourselves some curbs so we don't kind of accidentally fall off the law. If we're very, very precise, then God will be kind and generous again to us. If we do this, it will be for God to do that. And whether they were terrorists or rigorists, they still couldn't sort it out. And so this story of the feeding comes at a time when this is kind of deep awareness in the lives of the people. It's expressed at various times in the New Testament, but unless we have that uh, reminder in our heads of their history, we won't spot it because it runs so deep that it's, it's very rarely commented on. But this story is set at a time then when there are rebels and they know it, but what are they going to do? Uh, how many of you passed your driving test um, after more than one go at it? Thank you, and thank you for your honesty. Do now, if you failed your driving test, I hope your instructor didn't just say to you, well, come on, let's just keep having the lessons. I hope that he or she deliberately took you back over the element or elements on which you'd failed. That's the caring thing to do, isn't it? The caring thing is to pay particular attention to the focus of the problem. Now, in this story, that is precisely what Jesus is doing. I don't suppose he set out that day to do it. There's no evidence that he did. But rather, it would look like he took advantage of an opportunity that came his way. We're told that where they went is a remote place. And other gospel writers tell us that it's pretty much in the wilderness. And perhaps there was just a light bulb went on in Jesus' mind and said, wilderness, oh yeah, I know what we can do here. What Jesus is doing is taking them back to the focus of where it went wrong so they can sort it out there and have confidence that if it went right there now, then it could keep on going right. It's like unraveling some slight tangled ball of string to get back to the, the really, really deep tangle. Sort out that, and then the rest will come good. The problem they had in the, the time of the Exodus and the wanderings around the desert, the, time of the, uh, the, the, problem, uh, the problem they had in the time of Exodus was this, it's God's job to look after us. Then when he has done, we forget. 
The problem they had in the time of Jesus, whether they were terrorists or Pharisees, was saying it's God's job to look after us. Which, up to a point, he did. But they weren't doing the right things in response. Now, of course, the reason we say that is because that can be just the problem that there is for you and me today. That somehow, even if we've been believers for a while, we slip into thinking, well, it's God's job to look after me. Then when he does, we forget. God feeds his people in this story, not because Jesus is nice and kind and generous and they're a bit hungry in the middle of the desert, so it's a nice thing to do. He doesn't do it as a picnic. He wants to take them right back to the heart of their rebellious place. And no doubt it was resonant for them. Oh, this, we are living out a story that our ancestors have been part of, that's been handed down to us. Jesus has been healing them. That's nice. But now the, the need for ordinary stuff, for food, has kicked in. And obviously, for the normal in life, well, you look, you look to yourself and your own resources, like the disciples say. Send them to the villages and towns roundabout. Let them get what they need. No, says Jesus. I want them to understand. It's foundationally, basically, fundamentally, it is all about God's goodness. And I want them to understand it here. Some of you, no doubt, uh, will be going on holiday. In the next few weeks, some of you will be going to somewhere by the seaside. You will go splash about in the waves. Now, you know that feeling when uh, there's a wave that comes in and it kind of just catches you a bit by surprise and leaves you spluttering. And while you're still spluttering, there's another one comes behind and catches you doubly unawares. There is this great sin of ingratitude, and it's kind of overtaken with this double blessing. First, yes, they get the food, but yes, <laughs> spluttering, they get maybe this other point. I'm taking you right back to where the problem was. I'm sorting that out, and if I've sorted that out, is there anything I can't sort out? So to go back to the who question, who does Jesus think he is? Jesus thinks he is the one through whom God is at work to take his people right back to where it came from, to remake them, to reestablish them in grace, in God's generosity, at the most fundamental point of their existence, of history and of food. As, as I said earlier, and, and surprised Penny, it, uh, uh, it, it was interesting to me that for a feast they still take simply more of the most basic stuff. That's probably true of uh, peoples that don't have a lot of uh, God's good created material around them from which to choose festive food. So for this crowd, if you're hungry, you don't need a great, you don't need a, a feast of what, what the kids say, chocolate um, and uh, some of the other things we heard about. Uh, pig, pigs in blanket. You don't need desserts. You just need food and fish. 
And that becomes a feast in the desert that takes them right back to where they started from and refounds them almost. And to end with, let's just notice this, that there is an overflow. There are, just like, just like Jesse's extra box perhaps, there are 12 baskets left over. That food, that refounding of God's people spreads out from those 5,000, and that's just the 5,000 men, so we assume that they'll at least double that in terms of families, spreads out from those to that first community of believers, and then it spreads out to me and you several centuries later. All rebellion is overwhelmed by kindness. And so the question that I want to leave with you is this one. Where does God need to take you back to? To the heart, that place inside you that is the heart of rebellion. Even there, you will find that his love and grace and mercy is at work ahead of you to say, will you believe in my grace? And will you live it out as though you believed me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we, uh, we hear the stories and we struggle to see how they can be real for our own life, other than speaking perhaps in a children's Bible sort of way of Jesus' niceness. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, of whom we've already spoken in prayer this morning, that you would take us back to whatever is within us, that little tangle of rebellion that is unique to each one of us, and that we would find even there, and most of all there, that the grace of God in Christ untangles our rebellion and leads us to live in grace, and leads us to live towards glory. Amen.